A momentous appeal is currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court involving Oracle America's suit against Google for Google's creation of an API that enables Java programs to work on Android phones. The Federal Circuit opinion under the appeal helped shed new light on a curious aspect of software copyright law. Copyright not only protects the literal source code of a software program, but can at times extend to the non-literal elements of that code, including the sequence, structure, and organization of the code. This type of more figurative protection can yield counterintuitive results, such as extending copyright protection for the user experience of a website and enabling claims of source code infringement, even if the source code was not itself accessed and physically copied. I'm Amy Cotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode, we will be speaking with partner Chad Rutkowski, the author of the Beyond Source Code Tool and co-leader of Baker Hostetler's technology and IP transaction and outsourcing team, and co-leader of the Digital Transformation and Data Economy team. Welcome to the show, Chad. Thanks for having me, Amy. Really excited to be here. Chad, when most people think about software and IP protection, they're probably thinking patents. Why does a copyright protect software programs, and how did that come to be? So at first blush, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, right? Um, As a rule of thumb, I think people think of patents as protecting technology, and copyright protects the arts, protects books and music and paintings. Um, And there are a lot of people that question whether copyright really should protect computer programs. Computer programs are by their nature functional, so it seems like they should belong in that technology bucket. But copyright is broader than just the arts. Uh, It protects expression fixed in a tangible medium. That's the standard, right? And that has always included things like technical drawings and blueprints, manuals, certain designs, things that aren't arts at all. Um, And although the way we as humans encounter computer programs is somewhat ephemeral, that is, we we interface with a, a program through a screen and that has a certain design and we can make that screen move in certain ways or organize and manipulate data, create text, create images. The fact of the matter is that all that functioning that comes from a computer program comes from a document. It comes from a set of instructions that are written down and that's readable by humans and we call that source code, right? And the source code then gets translated, gets compiled into zeros and ones and that's what makes the computer do stuff. Think of it like music, okay? You experience music in real time. Uh, You know, sounds that sort of float in the ether, float in the air. They move fluidly through time and space. But copyright protects music. So how? Well, one of the ways is it protects the underlying sheet music. So even though the execution, right, of that sheet music yields something ephemeral, yields something you can't touch that you sort of just experience, the document is protected. And that's kind of similar to how computer programs are protected by source code. Um, Ironically, copyright protected computer programs before patents did. In 1964, the Register of Copyrights announced that computer programs would be accepted for registrations, viewing them as a kind of technical drawing or blueprint. But copyright does not extend to ideas, methods, or processes. So how do you square that? with a thing, a computer program whose entire existence is based around functioning, functionality. It was a bit uncomfortable uh, to resolve or at least think through some of these policy issues. 
a panel of real copyright luminaries, uh, Register Barbara Ringer, Melville Nimmer, Arthur Miller, convened the Commission on New Technology Uses of Copyrighted Works, CONTU, in 1974. They studied the issue for four years. In 1978, issued a report suggesting that the Copyright Act be amended to include a definition for computer programs in Section 101 of the Act, thereby effectively formally adopting copyright protection for programs. That amendment occurred in 1980. Um, one of the factors they considered, interesting enough, was that it is, quote, it is still unclear whether a patent may ever be obtained for a computer program. Uh, seem a little ridiculous to you know to us the, uh, these days because we sort of think of it the other way that the computer programs um, you know belong in the patent bucket but um, that actually did not happen um, did not begin to take shape until the 1990s I understand copyright protects the written source code but really how useful is that don't you need to have access to the source code itself and don't you have to literally copy that code you would think so, right? Because it's you know we're talking about copyright law, so you got to copy something. So, um, you know, I think for the the past two decades, most practitioners, in fact, saw copyright protection uh, protection for computer programs to be of little use. And really, there were two things at issues um, up until the Supreme Court's Alice decision in 2014. There were very broad, robust patent protections for different kinds of software that protected functionality. Well, copyright did not. And two, um, there was a sense that you had to show proof that the source code was accessed and copied. Now, to, to show infringement of a copyright, you have to prove, again, oddly enough, copying. Um, and to do that, you have to show that the defendant had physical access to the work, right? In order to copy something, you've got to have the thing in hand. Um, so, you know, copyright nerds like to sit around and you know, come up with these you know thought experiments but but if a hermit for example was you know isolated on a mountain and wrote word for word a John Grisham novel even though he never knew who John Grisham was never had access to the novel if it was an exact replication he would not be a copyright infringer right because he didn't copy anything he's, he's isolated he can't prove he had access to the work um, that's known as independent creation somewhat rare but it does happen um, so you have to show that you actually had access to the copyrighted thing, right? Well, accessing source code for the most part is very limited. Uh, software companies jealously guard their source code under lock and key, and generally they never let their customers or the public see it. Uh, in fact, there are quite a lot of negotiation in technology contracts uh, revolve around sort of convoluted uh, escrow provisions, where the code is placed in a in a virtual vault and only made available to a customer if the um, you know the vendor of the company goes bankrupt, the, the software company goes bankrupt or stops doing business. So the instances of accessing and copying source code is really kind of limited. It's limited to disputes with, let's say, a former employee or a business partner or some other insider that actually had access to the code. So, you know, while many practitioners had blinders on and focused on literal copying and kind of relied on the patents, there's this doctrine that's been percolating and, and then addressed a curious aspect of copyright law, and that is this notion of protection of a non-literal element of a literary work. Uh, again, think, you know, we tend to think of copyright as extending to things that you can copy, a physical book, you run through a copying machine, a physical CD, 
that you copy and sell at a flea market. Um, but copyright law does something weird. And it does something weird only with regards to textual, to literary works. And in those instances, copyright can actually leap off the page and protect not just the physical text that we can see and touch, but abstract aspects of the work as well. It's completely counterintuitive, right? It's supposed to be a bedrock concept that copyright law protects only tangible expression. But when it comes to literary works, we see courts protecting things like paraphrasing, protecting characters and settings and plots. So it's not just the text. It starts to look, look like protection for ideas, for concepts. Famously, recently, the Batmobile <laughs> was protected as a character, right? Um, and other famous characters like James Bond, Sherlock Holmes, E.T., separate and apart from the words written down, you know, were, were extended copyright protection. Um, so this, this notion, this idea grew out of sort of the ferment of the great Broadway era of the 1920s and 30s. There was a lot of competition in, you know, putting on plays. Um, the most famous case is called Nichols, written by Judge Learned Hand. It involved two plays with very similar plots about immigrants, but switching Jewish immigrants with Italian immigrants. And there the court found that for literary copyrights to mean anything, protection has to extend beyond just a straight copying of the text. Otherwise, the infringer could escape uh, you know, liability by making immaterial small variations. So to make sure that copyright law means anything, that it's robust enough uh, to do what it's set out to do and encourage creation, the court broke the play up into abstractions and found that the literary copyright extended to these abstractions. And those are things like character, plot, and setting. All right, well, that's all well and good with regards to literary works, but now we've got a problem when it comes to computer software, because if we're going to treat computer programs as literary works, then the same logic that applies to other literary works must apply uh, to the source code, um, you know, to, to computer programs as well. And what in the world, right, is a character of source code, right? What in the world is the plot of source code? Um, in the 1980s, 1990s, courts began to struggle with this issue and found that source code copyright extends beyond the code itself. You can infringe copyright in the code even if you never had access to the code, even if you never saw it. Um, so that's weird, right? That's a hard concept to wrap your head around. The best way that I know, uh, best way that I know to explain it is: imagine that you you went to a movie. Let's say you saw a Harry Potter movie. Um, and let's just pretend that, uh, like most Americans, you don't read. <laughs> so you never, you never read the book, right? You just went and you saw the movie and uh, you were blown away by this. The first time you were exposed to the, the world of Harry Potter was in this movie. And you think to yourself, this is fantastic. Wow, um, I want to do something like this. And, and you set out and you write, you write a story. You write a story about a, a boy wizard and he attends an elite school and he battles an evil dark lord. So you know, in your new quote unquote new work, you took the character, you took the setting, you took the plot. Well, guess what? You're an infringer. Okay. But you're an infringer, not of the copyright in the movie or even the screenplay, because those are adaptations. Those are derivative works. The character plot setting, those are things that grew out of the novel that you never read. So even if you are perceiving or experiencing the work through the lens of another work, the non-literal element copyright comes from the text. Uh, 
Something like that, something similar happens with computer programs. Even if you never had the code, but experience the program through the screen displays, the user interface, and copy things like sequence structure organization of the program or the screen displays themselves, you will have infringed the copyright in the code, in the, in the text itself. This is all really interesting. Chad, what kinds of non-literal elements of computer programs have the courts protected? So, so the most basic non-controversial one is screen displays and user interfaces. Um, in fact, the Copyright Office discourages filing a separate registration for the screen displays of a computer program. You know, they direct you that filing for the code uh, extends to, to the screen displays themselves. They don't want you to file two separate uh, versions, right? Uh, another common example are, you know, the user interfaces and, and, and menu structures. Um, Things get pretty interesting, though, when you talk about protecting the program sequence structure organization. This is a concept that came out of a case in the Third Circuit called Whalen in the 1980s. There, the court discussed uh, at length protection of the way a computer program used for managing dental laboratories, right? exciting as that is, uh, including the way that you progress through the program. So this notion of sequence structure organization uh, it's sort of become hot again. It's at issue in, in a very important Supreme Court appeal that's currently pending in which Oracle sued Google over Google's copying of an application programming interface, an API. Uh, and APIs enable different programs to uh, interact, to, to share information, uh, to interoperate. Um, and this particular API enables Java programs to operate on Android phones. Uh, so even though APIs are highly technical and the SSO, the, the sequence structure organization, would seem to be more functional than, say, the experience of using a computer program, the court nonetheless found that there was sufficient creativity, even in something as bland as an API, uh, to justify protection. Um, but when it comes to code protecting sort of the totality of the experience of the program, what we call UX, right, or the user experience, there's a really... Uh, interesting recent case that came out of the Central District of California involving Ticketmaster. Uh, and there, a bulk reseller of tickets sent a bot to the Ticketmaster site to gobble up popular tickets. Uh, Ticketmaster survived a motion to dismiss, stating that the bots infringed the UX of the Ticketmaster website. Uh, in doing so, the court talked about static non-literal elements, things related to the screen display, like we've been talking about, logos, images, you know, videos, the output uh, of the code, but it also extended the code's protection to dynamic non-literal elements. That's content that is constantly changing in response to a user's particular needs and requests. To do so, the court relied on some video game cases, one involving uh, World of Warcraft and the, the Blizzard company, um, you know, where code extends to a constantly changing environment, right? You know, when you play a video game, uh, what you see depends on where you move the joystick, how you move your character. Um, you know, the display is, is sort of directed by the user. Um, and, you know, that type of dynamic non-literal element in video games have, has generally been deemed to be protected. So that, that same logic was applied to the user experience of a, of a, of a website program. So those are the interesting ones. But there, there are some other, there's a ton of cases that really get into the minutiae of uh, different features 
of computer programs. So courts have extended protection to things like the the schema, uh, uh, you know, of, of database software. So those are the organization principles behind databases. They've protected particularized parameters, like the selection of certain, uh, you know, threshold values uh, for setting certain functions into motion. The precise command structures used to enable certain functions. Um, you know, these are really you know, highly fact-specific and, and, and technical features of, of different types of software. So uh, I created a, a web-based tool called Beyond Source Code that summarizes all of these non little element cases and organizes them by these different types of unique features. Um, I created the tool, frankly, because Oracle v. Google appeal uh, from 2014 confused me. <laughs> you know, I struggled with all this stuff, uh, with these, you know, that, uh, you know, this is some pretty, you know, abstract stuff. And, and I just fell down a rabbit hole of reading every case I could get my hand on to, to flesh out the, you know, the parameters, the, the, uh, the perimeter of the, of the doctrine. Um, and I wanted to digest all these cases, and make a little bit of outline just for my own use. Um, and I thought when I set out to do it, I'd get like maybe 10 cases. Turned out there were more than 60. Uh, and I continue to update the tool. I mean, I've got uh, four more cases I'm going to be updating and a, a bulk update and blogging about uh, shortly. Um, so types of non-little elements that can be protected, I think, continues to expand and change as different types of software gets considered by, by different courts. Thank you. That tool sounds really useful. Do all courts across the country recognize this kind of protection? Um, they do. So I, I think there was a, a common misconception that sequence structure and organization was really just a concept that belonged to the Third Circuit, the, you know, coming from the Whalen decision. And the Whalen decision is, has been beat up <laughs> quite a bit by other courts. It's been largely uh, rejected as the test they use to weed out and separate functionality from copyrightable expression, um, you know, where they basically said, look, if there was more than one way to perform a function, then the feature is protectable as expression. Uh, the second cir circuit, though, in a famous opinion, Computer Associates versus Altai, instituted a much more rigorous test uh, called the Extraction, Filtration, and Comparison Test. And that requires the court to break a computer program into varying layers of abstraction, um, you know, similar to what the Nichols Court did, right, with, with looking at plays. How, how do we take the text and abstract it out? Okay, we'll do plot, um, you know, uh, character setting. Uh, but for computer programs, they broke it out into the, the idea of the program, you know, into cascading layers of specificity down to the architecture, the design, into modules, and finally to the code itself. And, um, you know, once you identify where the potential protectable layer of abstraction is, you then weed out things like, um, you know, pure uh, functionality. Uh, what we call scenes affair. You know, this is just a common technique that programmers use. And then you, when you take filtrate, filter out all that stuff, all that noise, you can compare the nugget. You take the nugget of what's protectable and compare it against the allegedly cop, you know, the, the infringing version. Um, but the court, even though they rejected the Whalen test, they did not reject the notion that sequence structure and organization were protected. Just changed the way that you should analyze SSO. And I think the Oracle v. Google. Uh, you know, the 2014 Fed Circuit opinion really highlighted the, uh, the SSO doctrine, brought it back to the forefront again. Uh, and it came at a really interesting time, at just the right time, really, because almost ex at exactly that same time, the Supreme Court issued its CLS ba uh, Bank versus Alice opinion, 
that drastically limited the scope of patent protection for software. Chad, I have one final question for you. We've been hearing for some time that we're in the midst of a fourth industrial revolution driven by software that can employ artificial intelligence and machine learning to analyze data assets and yield better business results. What is the importance of this doctrine in furthering this fourth industrial revolution? Yeah, so, you know, the fourth industrial revolution is a software uh, revolution, right? It takes massive amounts of data and manages that data, ports it through software. Uh, It analyzes that data through software. Uh, It comes up with predictive tools, AI, machine learning through software, and it displays it, makes it usable in a presentation layer, again, through software. So the innovation in this space is red hot. Um, The amount of money and resources that are being spent uh, to to meet the demands of the the quote-unquote fourth industrial revolution um, is is really considerable. And this is against the backdrop of of a challenging patent landscape. Um, That pendulum, you know, when the CLS Bank versus Alice case first came out, uh, a lot of software patents got invalidated. Um, That uh, fervor <laughs> for invalidating software patents has calmed a bit. The pendulum's swinging back a bit, but it you know it certainly hasn't gone all the way back to where it was in the the early two thousands. Um, you know, companies are not that are spending all this money, all this time, are not just simply going to shrug their shoulders and say, "Oh well, I'll just give away all this innovation since I can't protect it by patent." They're looking for other ways, uh, you know, to to protect that investment. Um, and I think a lot of practitioners, in-house counsel, people at technology companies are sort of surprised when they look at things like the Beyond Source Code tool that, that summarizes all these cases, see how robust this doctrine really is, just how many permutations it has, how many different types of features have been protected. Um, and knowing that you've got sort of these arrows in your quiver, knowing that you, you have resort to this type of um, of protection, I think will will be very important in the years to come. Um, I'd encourage our listeners if you if you want sort of an overview of of what is involved, what types of things can be protected. If you go to a bakerlaw.com uh, forward slash beyond source code, you'll find our beyond source code tool. Uh, just a, a note: it's it's uh, usable really on desktops. It doesn't. Uh, doesn't render quite as well on on mobile apps or, or tablets. Thank you, Chad. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. If you have any questions for Chad, his contact information is in the show notes. Also, please be sure to check out our technology and IP transactions and outsourcing team, our digital transformation data economy team, along with our Beyond Source Code tool, all on bakerlaw.com. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.